0: If you have a Bible, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22. As far as I know, no one here uses a bilingual Bible or a Bible from the original languages. So if you are like me this morning and you are holding in your hand a Bible written in English, then apart from God's sovereignty, you owe a great debt to a man named William Tyndale. Tyndale was born around uh, 1494, I say around because they don't keep good rec- They did not keep good records back then, so we don't know exactly when he was born, but our best guess is 1494, and when he was born into a period of church history where God's people only had access to the Word of God in Latin. Uh, yes, some scholars uh, had access to Greek and Hebrew, but for you, the, the average Christian going to church on Sunday, you would have heard the scriptures read, proclaimed, and taught from a Bible in Latin, in Latin only. After college and ordination into the priesthood, Tyndale became a personal tutor to a wealthy family in Gloucestershire, England. And there he would instruct not only the family, but also uh, the students in the things of God. And Tyndale had been a student in college, not just of the scriptures, but also the words of Martin Luther, who was causing quite a stir with his calls for reform in the church on the European continent. And as this family tutor uh, of a wealthy family, he was... um, often able to dine with and engage with conversa- in conversation with many of the important clergy in that area that would come and be invited to be guests at the table of his master. And what Tyndale observed in these conver- conversations with this uh, church leadership was a woeful ignorance of God's Word. Uh, part of that was not their fault because... Though the Bible was only available in Latin, they did not know Latin themselves. Others in the priesthood at the time could not even read. So think about this just for a minute. Many of those teaching God's Word day in and day out in uh, churches throughout England and throughout Europe could not even read the Bible they could only go over what they had previously learned in school before their ordination. And so Tyndale made it his mission to provide a Bible in the common vernacular of the people. He wanted the English people to have the Bible in an English language. But for many, many reasons, the church denied his request to do that translation. And they made it illegal to produce an English Bible in England. Undeterred, Tyndale moved to... Germany at the age of 34 because it was not illegal in Germany to produce a bible in the English language. And so he began to go to work. He completed the New Testament, found a printer He would print them and the, and smuggled the pages back wrapped in bolts of cloth. And so as these bolts of cloth would would come into England, they would unwrap them and pull out a page of the New Testament. Unwrap them, pull out a page of the New Testament. And then they would be bound and sold and and passed around all of England and he while was attempting to work on the Old Testament as well and have that completed, the church in England discovered what he was doing. And certainly he would, he would be arrested if he ever came back to England. The, the, the king invited him back and said, I am willing to be merciful. And Tyndale wrote back and said, are you so merciful as to permit uh, the legality of the English Bible? And the king, quite enraged, said, no. And he said, then I'll never come back home. Nevertheless, the church was not satisfied and sent many spies out to seek him on the continent. And one day as Tyndale was going to supper, two guards observed him, identified him, and arrested him as an enemy of the church, as a heretic who would defy official orders and therefore put him in prison while he awaited execution by burning at the stake. Now, this was a day when Uh, drawings were pretty crude, how did they recognize Tyndale? How did they find him amidst all of the people on the continent? The reality is he had been betrayed. He had been sold out by a man named Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips had gambled a large sum of money and was about to go to debtor's prison until the church came to him and said, we will pay off your debts and give you an uh, even larger sum of money if you will go find Tyndale and give him to us. And so this man spent months playing as a sympathizer of Tyndale and his work, cultivating a relationship, earning his trust so that he might pay off his debt to this large sum of money by betraying him into the hands of the church. So as they were walking down this narrow path where these soldiers were positioned at the end, this man Phillips, much taller than Tyndale, stood above him and pointed down at his head indicating this was the man that they wanted. Tyndale languished in prison having everything that he previously owned confiscated and it was a terrible end for someone who had served God and the church so well. We might well wonder how Tyndale responded to such betrayal, to such treatment. Was he like we might be thirsty for revenge? Did he long in that prison for justice to be served even by God? Here's what we see from Tyndale's last letter from prison. He writes, I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary, that is the one who had uh, acquired all of his possessions when he was arrested. I request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin, and a piece of cloth too to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He also has warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. However it goes for me, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Here's a man who was used and abused and betrayed, and this is what he asked for. Warmer clothes, a lamp, some books and paper that he might keep working. That's all he wanted. And even if he didn't receive those things in a timely manner, he would patiently abide by the will of God. I can say with complete and utter honesty this morning, I am no Tyndale. Those are not the kinds of things that I would be writing for. At this stage in my life, I think I would be depressed and bitter and angry. But that was not Tyndale. And we have to ask ourselves, how did he find the strength to endure and persevere, not just in spirit, but also in ministry, while in prison after such a betrayal? The answer was this, he had every confidence in his Savior who had also endured a betrayal and arrest. The Christ who sustained Tyndale was the Christ who himself was persecuted and yet persevered with confident faith in God his Father. The scene of Jesus' betrayal and arrest early on the morning of Good Friday is where we find ourselves in the story Luke is telling us in his gospel As we want to understand not only what this passage says, but what it says to us today, we want to not only read it, but read a little bit in front of it that we might gain uh, a clear context. And so this morning, I would invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 39. This is God's word. Hear it and believe. Jesus came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness." Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Last week we looked at Jesus praying in the garden and the struggle as He contemplated the cup of God's wrath that He was about to endure for His people. Though innocent, He was about to drink down the wrath that they deserved for their sins, that we deserved for our sins. He prayed for God's help to do His will and that help came Jesus leaves the garden fully resolved for the cross ahead, obeying the will of God His Father. But before the atoning, salvific pain of the cross, He will first suffer the indignity of betrayal and arrest. And as He does, Jesus gives us a glimpse of His glory that should help us in our own faith in Him. He shows us the kind of Savior that He is that we might not fail to pray and enter into temptation. And yet, when we do fail, we are here assured of the Savior who will forgive and bring us back into fellowship with Himself. So, as we seek to, to, to see Christ in this passage, we begin by first noticing His benevolence in betrayal. His benevolence in betrayal. Luke says, while he was still speaking, that is, while he was still telling his disciples, watch and pray, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. Now, much as in Tyndale's day, only more so, uh, this is the day before mugshots or Instagram. There's no paintings or portraits or photographs uh, that cause people to be well known in terms of their appearance. So Jesus would not have, you would not have been able to immediately pick him out of a crowd unless like one of the disciples you had been with him for a long time, or perhaps he had visited your house personally, or you had seen him up close while he preached a few times. This is why Judas was there to lead this group, not only to Judas' location, but also to identify him to the authorities. Notice Luke says that he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, it's interesting that Mark tells us directly that Judas was the one who had told them, this will be a sign for you. The one that I kiss is the one that you should seize and arrest. Judas had the idea of using the kiss to identify Jesus. And so when he finds Jesus in the garden, he calls out to him, Rabbi, to get his attention, and then he actually goes and kisses him on the cheek. But here, Luke slows down the narrative a little bit. Luke gives us more of, a, of an intimate picture of what happens in this moment. He is telling his disciples, Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And as he's doing that, as the, the disciples are, are struggling to awake from sleep, Judas calls out to him, Rabbi. And he comes close to greet him and stoops in, leans in to kiss him. But Jesus stops him. He stops him on the lean in and he says, Jesus, or Judas, Judas would you betray the son of man with a kiss we know even today a kiss on the cheek in certain cultures was a pretty common form of greeting but it wasn't so common that it was meaningless it was still not something that you would greet strangers with it was a a sign of affection uh, something more than just a casual handshake or a hello it was a, a warm greeting that conveyed something to the depth of the relationship. Think about someone that is close to you, someone that has been meaningful in your life you haven't seen for a few months and a few years. You don't just say, hi, how you're doing. You, you go in for the bear hug. You go in for the grip and you hold on to them for a minute and, 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 re- and remember how much they mean to you and let them know the same thing. And so as Judas leans in for the betrayal, Jesus asks him, are you really going to do this? Are you really going to betray me, Judas? Are you going to do it with a kiss? I just think for a minute about the kindness of Jesus in that moment an undeserved, unappreciated kindness from Jesus towards Judas. Jesus knows what's coming. I mean, he has predicted it from the beginning, he knows what is going to happen. You would, you would think there would be a rebuke. You would think there would be anger. But, but after all these years, Judas has been loved by Jesus. Jesus has invested in him as a disciple. He has instructed him. He has sent him off and authorized him to preach. He has prayed for him just a few hours before in great humility. Jesus has washed Judas' feet. And now Judas is about to betray him. He might as well have slapped him as a, in the face as a sign to the soldiers. But instead, Judas is about to malign this universal sign of love, the kiss, by betraying the one who still loves him. If it were anyone else with Jesus, I don't think I would actually believe what is written here. But here, even here, right on the edge of this despicable act, Jesus is trying to keep Judas from ruining his soul forever. Judas leans in for the kiss and Jesus says, Are you sure you want to do this? Are you you really sure you want to go down this road? Do you really want to betray the Son of Man, the one that you know to be the Messiah, with a kiss? But Judas will not turn back. Judas will not see his sin. He will not heed the words of Jesus. And he betrays him. Here we see even in Jesus, in this, in this small moment, the great benevolence, the great love that Jesus has for sinners, even sinners like us today. In love, Jesus warns us that we are on an irrevocable path to hell. And he warns us because he loves us to warn us that we might turn and be saved. That's what we see in Jesus here. But Luke shows us more. We also see in Jesus one who brings clarity to confusion clarity to confusion. Remember that just hours before this, Jesus told the disciples that one of you 12 are going to betray me. The apostles are no dummies and they immediately see what's happening. They know where all this is going. I mean, again, it's not just like Judas kind of wanders in by himself. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the crowd, but there's all these men here with torches with him. They, they know what's happening. So in verse, verse 49, it says, when those who were around him saw what would follow, when the apostles saw what was coming, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now Judas has just demonstrated his lack of love for Jesus. Peter is about to display his abundance of love for Jesus. Remember back in the in the upper room after the Lord's Supper together, Jesus had prepared the apostles for the change that was going to come. He said, you're not going to have a ministry that that is, is going to be based on the goodness of Israel anymore. You're not going to be able to, to, to show up at someone's house and them know you're an itinerant preacher and bring you in and give you a place to stay and a warm meal. He says, you're about to become enemies of Israel. You're about to go out into the, the lands of the Gentiles. You've got to be ready. You've got to be prepared even for bandits and thieves. Take a sword with you for protection. And they said, even there, we got two right here. And he says, "That's fine. It's fine. That's enough. You don't need to go hog wild and crazy. Two is enough. Well, they've strapped these swords on as they've gone out into the garden to pray. Now they see Judas coming to Jesus with this massive crowd of torch bearing weapon carrying soldiers and Peter springs into action. There is no way he is going to let Jesus be arrested and taken away. So the disciples call out, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Peter doesn't wait for an answer. He, he, he unsheathes his sword. He swings it at the guy that is presumably the one that is closest to him, the servant of the high priest aiming for his head. But Peter is no Errol Flynn. And as this poor servant ducks, uh, Peter cleaves off his ear. And so verse 22, or rather uh, verse 50 of chapter 22, is one of them, that is Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, we're told elsewhere, the name of this man is Malchus. We're told that it's Peter, the one who wields the sword. But Luke doesn't tell us that. Why? Why does not You notice he's very vague about who's doing what here other than Jesus and Judas. That's because when Luke is writing, Peter is very much alive. And to start naming names about who assaulted somebody else, there was the potential the document could actually be used against Peter in a Roman court and get him in trouble. Now, we know it's Peter and Malchus because by the time John writes his gospel, he's the last surviving apostle. There's no one that's going to do any more harm to Peter or anyone else, so he names names. He says, this dude was Malchus, and this dude Peter sliced his ear off. That's how we know what's going on. What we see here is that Peter is ready to do Just what he said he would do, suffer prison or death to protect and not leave Jesus. But notice Jesus puts a stop to the whole thing. No more of this, he said. No more of this. Don't use the swords now. And instead, verse 51, he touched his ear and he healed him. Now, for a long time, there's been confusion among the disciples, even among the people, about who Jesus is, about exactly what he's going to do as the Messiah. In the midst of all this, this kind of tension, which could have easily spiraled out of control, Jesus stops the whole thing and brings clarity to his mission. Surrounded by these ready soldiers and eager disciples, Jesus bends down and heals one of his enemies, one who is there to help And arresting him. It's the last miracle that Jesus does before he goes to the cross. And it's this last miracle that provides a window into the nature of his ministry. Jesus is not about a kingdom of force on this earth. He is not about taking control away from the Romans by the sword, just the opposite. Jesus will bring a new kingdom. He will take away control from the Romans, but it will come by healing the hearts of sinners. So just as Jesus bends down and takes hold of this bloody lump of flesh on the side of this man's head, this man that was there to do him harm and heals him, so even today Jesus reaches down to the hearts of rebels and sinners who will quickly blaspheme the name of Jesus as much as take a breath and he heals them, he redeems them. He gives them eyes to see his glory and transforms him them by his grace. That's the nature of Jesus' messiahship. That's the nature of him as Savior. That's we'll see later in Luke's gospel. Jesus calls his disciples to follow him in that kind of ministry. We don't win over sinners to Christ's kingdom by the threat of the sword. Instead, we point them to Christ's love demonstrated by his own sacrifice for them on the cross. During his betrayal and arrest, we see Jesus' benevolence, his clarifying words, but then we also thirdly see his authority. We see by Luke's pen the authority of Jesus over adversity, his authority over adversity. What Luke calls a crowd, the other gospels fill in in more detail. Here we know that there are temple guards that have swords and clubs. There are a number of people, uh, the elders of Israel. We have the servant of the high priest. We also know that there are a large contingent of Roman soldiers here. They all have weapons as well as lanterns and torches. This is a huge crowd here. I mean, this is at least over a hundred people. And if we were to be standing in Jesus' place, being surrounded by uh, this small army, we would feel helpless and afraid. But notice Jesus doesn't. Verse 52, he said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? He's saying, "You're, you're treating me like a criminal. What have I done wrong? What do you think I'm going to do? Uh, other than the the two times he has cleansed the temple, one at the beginning of his ministry, one just earlier this week when he has uh, pulled out a whip and driven out cattle. Uh, has he ever done anything violent? Has he ever actually hurt someone? And yet here they are treating him like some kind of criminal. Hey, I've just told my disciple not to wield the sword. I don't even carry a sword. You're treating me like a criminal, but really you're the ones that are acting like the criminals. He says, look, I've taught day in and day out. I've taught publicly all my life. I've been in homes. I've been in the city streets. I've been in the temple courtyard. You've never come to arrest me then. Why? Because these people feared the opinions of others. Luke just told us that at the beginning of this chapter. They feared the fallout of the people who would go and flock to hear Jesus teaching. So what do they do? They wait until night. They wait until night. It used to be very common. I don't know of anybody who says it now. But in a previous generation, your parents or grandparents would have said something like this, nothing good ever happens after midnight. Be home. Be home. And Jesus is essentially inferring something similar. What are you doing out here in the middle of the night? They're sneaking around under cover of darkness like criminals trying to arrest him away from the public eye. But even this is not unforeseen by Jesus. Do you know what he says about this being their hour? He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you do not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. What is Jesus telling us here? He's telling us this. In this arrest, along with the, the, the ridiculous trial, And then eventually his execution on the cross, we see this evil being perpetrated on Jesus by those in power. We see the religious leaders of of Israel as well as the Roman authorities. But what Jesus is saying is they do not ever stand in authority over Jesus legitimately by by their own power. Rather, this authority has been granted to them. Jesus says, this is your hour, not just indicating the time of day or this moment, but rather the smallest portion of authority that's been given to them by God who is sovereign over all things. Jesus, not as one famous scholar once claimed, Jesus is not being ground down into the wheel of fate unable to help himself. No, he still stands as the one in authority over the entire scene. In fact, in fact, John tells us that, that when they come and they say, we're looking for Jesus, he, he, he might say, I am he, or it is me, or he might say, I am. I tend to think it's the second because all of the Roman soldiers fall down on their knee. Who has the authority in this garden? Who has the authority in this rest? It's not them, it's Christ. He is the one where in John 10, he says, it is my authority. I am the one who am able to both lay down my life and to take it up again. In Matthew, he tells Peter, after he tells him to put away the sword, he goes, do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. He says, do you not think the army of heaven itself is, is, is at my command right now? That this whole thing would be over in a second if I wanted it to? But that's not the will of my father. It is the will of my heavenly Father that I suffer and die under the hands of wicked men that I might make atonement for their sins. And that's why they are granted this hour. Jesus willingly goes under the power of the forces of darkness that are at work here. And so even for us today, when we think about this last week, we think about these men who died with Jesus on their lips, their heads being sawed off their shoulders, we think about the larger atrocities being committed. We just think about the ridiculous things that happen in our life. They're just everyday kind of injustices. We are very easily or at least might be easily tempted to just think we're not winning. It's not getting better. What's going on? Where is God in these things? But we have to remember that even in the midst of the vilest attacks and atrocities and the worst adversity, Christ is still in authority. Christ is still sovereign over all things. And we live in such an age in which the gospel, while it is advancing, people are being saved and the church is growing, Satan is not going to stand by and merely watch. He is going to resist. He is going to rage against the light even as he knows his end is coming near. So all of that should be thought about and meditated upon and prayed about in light of what we see in this passage, namely that even the vilest sins of humanity are going to be used together for the good of the church as the gospel is preached and sinners are both saved and sanctified. The worst sin in the world is happening right here in our passage. Jesus' betrayal, His arrest, His denial, His trial, and His execution. And yet what is going to happen from this sin but the most amazing miracle of God's grace? Jesus shows benevolence and betrayal, brings clarity to confusion. He wields authority and adversity. And finally, Jesus has the power to bring devotion from denial. He has the power to bring devotion from denial. The other Gospels make it clear that when Jesus does not fight back, but willingly goes with the authorities, the disciples scatter off into the night. Though there are probably some kind of initial attempt to grab them, the soldiers aren't that concerned with their capture. They're really there for Jesus. But even as the disciples flee, you'll notice Peter doesn't go very far. Though he abandons Jesus, it's only for a short while because Luke says, he continues to follow though at a distance. And as I thought about that, as I pondered that this, this week, I thought, isn't that a wonderful description of most of us some days? We do not lose our faith. We're still following Jesus, but it's at a distance. It's not the intimacy of fellowship that Jesus calls us to. It's not the degree of loving obedience that Jesus designs for our life. We're lagging behind spiritually, but we're still following him. We're following at a distance. and That's not just true of Peter's physical location, but also of his heart. Luke says the crowd seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Luke goes on to explain that when they had kindled a fire in the courtyard, uh, excuse me, in the middle of the courtyard of the high priest and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Peter loves Jesus. He doesn't want to abandon him completely. He still believes he's the Messiah. He wants to stay close. He wants to know what is going to happen to him. But then verse 56, a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little while... Later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. I remember our church used to do a Easter cantata every year, and they would always have this scene in. The problem was they never explained what it was about. And I used to think of people that had never heard the story, never in church, and they see Peter denying Jesus. He had this uh, sound effect, rooster crow, the speakers of the church, and Peter looks panicked, and, and they don't know what it's about. And I know they didn't know because they would often laugh at the scene. But this is not anything to laugh about. Peter fails because of his sin, but Jesus had predicted the failure. Peter confessed undying loyalty to Jesus in the upper room just some hours before, but Jesus said, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Phil Reichen wisely points out the true test of our discipleship not lies in the promises we make to God, but in our witness to the world. We can sing all the songs we want, offer all the smiles, act like we've got it all together in the midst of church, but what is our life like when we exit these doors? You see, that's what's happening with Peter. When he's with Jesus, when he's with the 12, he can talk a good game, perhaps even sincerely. The problem comes when he's forced to put up or shut up. And he doesn't put up, he shut ups. He doesn't confess Christ, he denies him. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are our daily priorities like? Do they validate our confession of faith here or do they stand in contrast to it? Do they reflect a clear witness of our faith or our desire to be as comfortable as possible? Jesus denied, or rather, Jesus was denied by Peter three times, just as he said, the rooster crows. And in that moment, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I can't imagine the stab of pain that must have been in Peter's heart at that moment. What would it have been like to look into the eyes of the man you pledged your life to only to ever deny you knew him? Not once, not twice, but three times. What must have it been to look into the eyes of the man you've just abandoned, who was about to lose his life, simply because you feared the loss of your own life. It's not surprising that he laughed and wept bitterly. Now, if we fast forward a little, we know Peter actually becomes the disciple he always professed to be, the disciple that he wanted to be. Just as he denied Jesus three times, so after Jesus' death and his resurrection, Peter, to his face, affirms three times his love and devotion to Christ and his willingness to serve Christ's people The authenticity of that affirmation is then borne out in his life as he boldly preaches the gospel of Christ, leading the church for decades until he himself is crucified by Roman authorities. The question is, what happens between now in this passage and then in that one? What happens between him denying and weeping bitterly and him boldly and confidently preaching Christ in about 40 days? The answer is simple, two words, Peter repented. Peter repented. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says there are two kinds of sorrow, one that leads to life and another that leads to death. There is a godly sorrow that brings life because that godly sorrow brings us to repentance for our sins and faith in Christ to save and forgive. But there is another kind of sorrow that stops short of repentance and only lands in regret. Regret. I'm sorry that I did this because I don't like the consequences. That's what regret is. Repentance is, I'm sorry that I did this because it was offensive to God. That's the difference. That's the difference. The distinction is seen here between Judas and Peter. Again, we know from the other Gospels that Judas regrets what he did. He goes to the chief priests and the elders and he says, I want to take it all back. I want to give back this 30 pieces of silver that I took. I want Jesus to be spun free. And they said, it's done, son. It's it's done. And in great despair, Judas throws the money out. And what does he do? He goes out and he commits suicide. He hangs himself. He has a sorrow that is marked by regret but leads only to death. Peter, on the other hand, sees his sin and grieves, but does more than just regret what happened. He repents. How did he come to repent? Through Jesus. And I think we see it implied at least in these verses here. First, there is the sympathetic look that Christ gives Peter. Jesus knew it was coming. Jesus knew his weakness. He told Peter what his weakness would be. And as the rooster crows, Peter's eyes snap to Jesus. Jesus looks at him in a way that reminds him of his weakness, that points out his sin, but also provides him hope. Because with that look, I think Jesus also reminds him of his saving word, Luke says in verse 61, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. That's what the Lord had said to him. That's what Jesus had predicted. But that's not all he had predicted. That's not all he had said to Peter. Remember, before that, he said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, Peter, when you have repented, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus said, you're going to fail, but you're also going to repent and be the apostle I've called you to be. And I think that's what gave Peter the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance of love that enabled him to go and weep bitterly with sorrowful repentance. It was the saving, it was rather the sympathetic look that led to the remembering of a saving word which resulted in sorrowful repentance. These tears of Peter weeping were not just for himself, but also for his Savior. How could he have denied someone who loved him so much? And we must ask ourselves the same question. How can we deny someone who loves us, who has loved, who still loves, and will continue to love us so much more than a decade ago, my dad once befriended a Christian man at his work who was struggling with pornography. And my dad told him every time he walked into the smut shop, he ought to wear a sign that with these words, I do not know him. The question for us is, what are we saying? What are we doing? Where are we going? What are we thinking that should cause us to have the same sign on us? I do not know him. Once we've honestly answered those questions, then what shall we do? How will we deal with our sin? B.B. Warfield is helpful as he was preaching on this passage and he said this, As our Savior was being tried and preparing to bear the sins of all of us on the cross, he had time to give one glance to a faltering disciple and so save his soul in the saving of the world. How much more will Christ still look at us today when we are faltering? If we are a disciple of Jesus, we can relate to Peter's experience. We may not have verbally said, I do not know him, but we've declared it with our lives. We can relate to failing Jesus. We can relate to confessing him with our lips and denying him with our actions. But there is hope for us just as there was for Peter. The hope comes when we look to Jesus. When we look to Christ and see not just the seriousness of our sin, but we also remember His promised word of forgiveness. Only then will we move past regret to repentance and from there be restored to fellowship with our Savior. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we would not languish in our sin, that we would not die in regret, that we would not so experience regret that we would actually demonstrate we've never believed in the first place. Instead, Father, we want to find ourselves under that sober, saving gaze of grace that our Christ looks at us. Looks at us with both tears of sorrow and tears of joy in His own eyes, reminding us how far we have fallen and yet the great price by which we've been saved, that we might be forgiven as well. Father, today we pray that you would help us to look to Jesus here and be encouraged to be a people who always repent just as he told us to do. In Jesus' very first sermon, he said, repent and believe the gospel. May that be our daily habit. May that be the power with which we live our lives that would increasingly allow us to say no to sin and yes to him. Father, may our declaration not be, I do not know Him, but rather, I do know Him. He is my Savior and my King. We pray it in His name. Amen.